Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Need for Passion. All right. Well, while I was serving as an assistant pastor years ago at my previous church, a bunch of us got together and we organized a camping trip for our students in our student ministry. And so we got together and one of the men in our church who loved our students, he owned a bunch of property uh, toward the middle of the state, west of Jupiter, out in the woods. And see, he said, hey, you can use my property uh, for your camp out. And so we were excited about that. And so what happened was we all went out there uh, for a fun weekend. And that evening, that first evening after everybody arrived, we had a great time setting up camp, playing games, you know, eating junk food, and um, sitting around the fire. And what a fire it was. The guy who owned this property, he must have had the motto of go big or go home because he didn't want a small campfire. He wanted a large bonfire. And so what he did is he brought his bobcat, his little bulldozer, uh, out to his property that afternoon, spent half the day clearing a large area right next to his lake on his property out in the woods. And the reason that he chose the lake as the spot for the fire, because he wanted an assurance that if anything happened, anything got out of control, we'd have lots of water to douse that fire with. He even brought a bunch of buckets and filled them up to make sure that we were ready in case something happened. So we all gathered a lot of kindling that night and we put it all together and the result was this huge pile of wood that was over some of our heads. And then it was time to light the fire. Now all this happened about 15 years ago and so my memory is a little foggy but I remember that somebody had a gas can and he took the gas can, he doused the wood on the uh, the, the big pile of wood. Then he made a gas line about 40 yards. And everybody was told, stand back. And he lit that fire line, and we're all watching as the fire is getting closer and closer to this big pile of wood. And it was right then that everything for me went into slow motion. Has that ever happened to you, by the way? You know, you're about to get into an accident and God somehow does something and you, everything slows down, right? It happens whenever something shocking happens in your life. You know, like when your 15-year-old cleans their room, everything just goes slow motion. What happened, right? Or when the Green Bay Packers kick a field goal with five seconds left on the clock to win the game. It's like, no, stop, right? Well, that day, everything went into slow motion, and that fire hit that pile of wood, and all I heard was a boom and a roar, and the whole thing caught fire and flames shot up into the sky. And you know, we got a bunch of students in a student ministry, so everybody's going crazy. They're so happy, right? Everybody's excited because we had the mother of all fires. Everybody was excited until the fire department showed up. <laughs> sure enough, I don't know how it happened to this day. Somebody, I mean, we're talking way out in the woods. Somebody must have saw the flames. They called 911. And so here comes the fire truck, sirens blazing. And you know, they come up 
They park, they get out of their fire trucks, and the owner of the property begins to talk to them. You say, where were you? I was hiding behind a tree. You know, I just was like, I wasn't. I was just like, man, we're in so much trouble, right? And so somehow, our, the owner of the property was able to talk this guy down. Uh, maybe the fire department saw the cleared land, saw the lake, saw the buckets of water. When he saw that everything was under control, they left and they let us resume our festivities. I still think one of the kids gave these guys free hamburgers or something, but none of us got in trouble and they left. Now, that fire 15 years ago, that blazing bonfire, when I think about that thing, one word comes to my mind, passion. Intense, authentic passion. So if you're taking notes, passion can be defined as a strong and barely controllable, what's the word? Emotion. I don't know what's wrong with some pastors today. They think that there should not be any emotion in the church. Really? Didn't God make us not just intellectual beings but emotional beings as well? What's wrong with showing a little emotion every once in a while? And so strong and barely controllable emotion and intense desire or enthusiasm for something. And so the intensity of that bonfire that I described to you illustrates the need that we have for this intense, authentic passion for the Lord. And when you look around America today, and you look at the vast majority of churches, here's what we know. They're lacking passion, authentic, intense passion for the Lord. And not only the church as a whole, but as individuals. So many individual believers lack this authentic passion for Jesus Christ. And so my prayer today is that just like that bonfire 15 years ago burned with intensity, so God would do something in our hearts that would cause us to have this passion for the Lord, that he'd come and set our hearts on fire for him. We need it today, and the church of Ephesus needed it 2,000 years ago as well. So we're gonna talk about the flames of passion when we get to verses four and five, but before we do that, I gotta bring you up to speed to where we are in the Bible. Okay, and so last week we saw John incarcerated on the island of Patmos and the glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ reveals himself to John and he says in verse 19 of chapter one, he gives, them, gives John the divine outline. So go back and check out verse 19 of chapter one. Jesus says to John, write. Write therefore the things that you have Seen, please say have seen. And those that are, please say are. And those that are to take place after this, please say after this. Okay, there's your divine outline for the book of Revelation. So Jesus told John, I want you to write the things that you have seen. He said that in Revelation chapter one, verse 19. Write the things that you have seen, verses one through 18. What did John see? He saw the glorified Christ. And so that's section one. We're already done with that section. Two Sundays, half of chapter one, first Sunday, second half of chapter one, uh, second Sunday, and we, we talked about the vision that John had of the glorified, 
glorious, resurrected Christ. And then he said, I want you to write the things that are. That's chapters two and three. That's the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And then he said, third section of Revelation, I want you, John, to write the things which will take place after this, after the church age. Okay, that's chapters four through 22. And that's, by the way, in the future. Okay, so chapters um, four and five is the church in heaven. Chapter six through 19 is the coming seven-year tribulation. Chapter 20 is the thousand-year reign of Christ. Chapter 21 and 22 is the new heavens and the new earth. And so right there, we have the divine outline of Revelation. Okay, so today, once again, we're gonna start studying the seven letters to the seven churches. And the first church that Jesus wants to write to is the church of Ephesus. Now, before we read verse one, I want to make sure everybody understands that these were seven literal churches in AD 95. They're in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And so that's the interpretation. This is a message from Jesus to those seven churches. But you also need to know that those seven letters have application to all churches of all ages in the last 2,000 years. You also need to know that those seven letters have application to all churches today. That's why we're studying this section of the Bible. And then finally, you need to know that all these, or, or many of the points in the seven letters have application to your life individually. And so this is why I'm excited about chapters two and three. You see, here's the problem, a lot of people here Revelation, yeah, man, the beast coming out of a sea, the Antichrist, you know, the, the, the mark of the beast, all that stuff. Can't wait to get into it. And then they get to chapters two and three, and they're like, what? Well, chapters two and three is for us. It's to churches just like our church, and it needs to be applied to our lives. And so we start now in chapter two, verse one. Please look. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. The words of him who holds the, note this, seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the, please note this, seven golden lampstands. Okay, so what are the seven stars and what are the seven golden lampstands? And if you remember, we learned this in week one, um, we let the Bible interpret the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I have no right to just come up with our own definition of any symbol in the Bible. There's always literal truth behind every symbol, and a lot of times, the symbols are defined in the book of Revelation, like right now. And so we keep the verse in its context. As soon as you see somebody, whether it's in a church or on TV, who lifts a verse out of context and starts teaching whatever he wants to teach, don't listen to him. Keep the verses in their context. Okay, so how do you know what the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands are? Back up one verse. It's right there. There's no chapter divisions in the original scroll of this letter. And so chapter one, verse 20 says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the, what? Angels. The Greek word is messengers. So we took a, a time last week to show that that's 
human messengers, it's not actual angelic beings. So these are the pastors. And so once again, the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so now with that information, let's reread verse one. To the messenger or pastor of the church of Ephesus, right? The words of him, that's Jesus, who holds the seven stars, the seven messengers, the seven pastors in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches. And so make the Bible come alive in your mind. I want you to envision the glorified Christ. You got the description last week. And what is he doing with his eyes that are like a flame of fire? He's walking in the midst of his seven churches and he's evaluating. He's looking into the hearts of people and he's making judgments. How many of you guys believe that Jesus has every right to judge his people? Every right. So that's what he's doing, not just to these seven churches, but to all churches, including our church. He's making an evaluation. Of course, the first church is the church of Ephesus. So if you ever go and visit Ephesus, and I asked this the first two services, and I wanna ask it again, because I'm always interested. How many of you guys have ever visited Ephesus? Can I just see your hand if you're here and you visited Ephesus before? All right, yes, we got a couple people. Uh, last, last service, I think it was 10, the first service, like four. And so those of you, if you ever go to Ephesus, what you'll find is not anything like you saw, like, like they saw in the first century. What you're gonna find is a heap of ruins, archeological digs, which by the way, all the archeological digs that they've done have always authenticated the Bible, okay? And so what you'll find if you go to Ephesus is a heap of ruins, and the reason for that is because the city was abandoned in the 15th century AD. But during the first century AD, Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So let's look at our map again. And so there you see Ephesus there, just on the north end of the Mediterranean, the southern end of the Aegean Sea. Technically, it's right off the Aegean Sea. And then you notice these six other cities. Well, the Romans built a road. They were famous for building their roads. And they built a road from Ephesus to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, kind of looped around. And they used that road back in, the, in 95 AD as a postal route and also as a, um, a, a trade route. Now, what you need to know is that this church already received a divine letter back in AD 60 or AD 63, the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to the church of Ephesus. It's in your New Testament. It's called Ephesians. That was AD 60 to 63. But now, over 30 years later, they needed another letter. They needed another exhortation, this time written directly, dictated directly from Jesus to John, to the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And I think it's interesting that they already got one letter, now 30 years later they need another letter. Why? Because what, what we know is that Christian churches have a tendency 
to kind of lose their passion, and so they need to be exhorted again. And so check out how Jesus now commends them for their good works. Look at verse two. He says, I know your works and your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know, verse three, that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So Jesus here is saying, good job. And he continues to give them uh, an attaboy in verse six. Jump down to verse six real quick. He says, yet this you have, you hate, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so Jesus saw, as he made his evaluation of Ephesus, the church there, he saw several good qualities in this church and he commended them for it, okay? So what were the good qualities in the church of Ephesus? Here it is, if you're taking notes. The church of Ephesus was diligent and they were discerning and they were determined. And that's why, for their evaluation, they get a little smiley face there. Jesus is really happy with the fact that they had these qualities. And so let's, let's break this down real quick. First of all, they're, they're diligent. We saw this on the first part of, of verse two. Check it out again. He says, I know your works and your toil. Everybody please say toil. And your patient endurance. That word toil. It means intense labor to the point of exhaustion. And Jesus is like, good job, you're doing that for me. Sometimes I look around at our ministry partners, whether they're serving in Shine, whether they're serving in the parking lot, whether they're greeting, ushering people to their seats, whether they're praying before the services or praying with people after the services. I look at the creative arts, the worship team, I look at the hospitality team, I look at the, uh, um, the, the safety team, I, the security team, I can go on and on, I'm probably missing some teams, but I see these hundreds of people and what they're doing, many of them, is they're working to the point of exhaustion. Why? For the Lord. And I'm so grateful. Here's what you need to know if you're, if you're serving as an active ministry partner, we could never do church without you. And so I, th I think it's so appropriate, third service, can we just put our hands together for our ministry partners in this church? I mean, really, really, really thank them for what they do. Your role in serving is huge. And if you weren't here, I'd probably, probably be preaching to 10 people. And so these Ephesians, 2,000 years ago, they toiled, they worked for the, to the point of exhaustion, they worked hard for the Lord. So what were they doing? Probably, most likely, most certainly, right? They were evangelizing sinners, sharing the gospel. And then after that, they were, um, no, no doubt, uh, discipling these new believers. They were equipping the saints for the work of ministry. They were sending out church planners all around Asia Minor. They were visiting sick people. They were taking care of widows and orphans. We, you know, we could go on and on and on. And Jesus said, man, you guys are working hard. And I commend you for that. You see, the Ephesians understood that Christianity is not a spectator sport. 
and they got off the bench and they got into the game. And there's something here today and you come to church and you sit in a row twice a month and you, that's the extent of your Christianity. And the Lord's saying, why aren't you working for me? Why aren't you toiling for me to the point of exhaustion? Hey, only one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so for some of you, you need what, the, what Jesus is trying to give to the Ephesians here, a, a little boost to begin to serve the Lord. You don't have to receive a paycheck to receive the Lord. I mean, so you don't have to re, uh, receive a paycheck to serve the Lord. The vast majority of servants across the world do it on a volunteer basis. And without them, as I've said before, church ministry, parachurch organizations, listen, none of that happens. So the great is the reward on the judgment seat of Christ for those who diligently serve the Lord. They were diligent and they also were discerning. And Jesus applauded them for that. They were discerning, verse two, because they did not tolerate false teachers. It's good. And they were discerning, verse six, because they did not tolerate the Nicolaitans. And so let's find out who the Nicolaitans were. Look at verse six again. He says, yet this you have, you hate the, what's the word there? Works. Okay, so everybody say works. Okay, look at verse six again. This you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, very carefully, this is why it's important you bring your Bible or pull it up on your device so you can follow along. This is the verse where we get the phrase, love the sinner and hate the sin. Did you see that the church of Ephesus did not hate the Nicolaitans? Do you see that? They didn't hate the Nicolaitans. They hated the works of the Nicolaitans. They loved people. They hated the sin. By the way, Jesus is the same way. He's our example. Jesus does not hate people, right? God commended his love toward us, his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No, Jesus loved sinners but he hates sin. And he said right there, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so who were the Nicolaitans? Uh, well, actually, we don't have a lot of information about these guys. There's different opinions. Apparently, they were a religious group around in that age, that time frame, that lived immoral lives and they used God's grace as an excuse. You say, where do you get that from? Um, two people who lived, in, lived and preached in the second century, okay? So right now we're at the end of the first century. Two people, Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria, lived and preached in the late second century within 100 years after this was written, and they said certain things about the Nicolaitans, okay? Irenaeus said the Nicolaitans came from Nicholas, who was one of the seven deacons in Acts chapter six, who fell away, he committed apostasy, and Irenaeus said this, and I quote, the Nicolaitans lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. In other words, the idea is I can sin you know, um, in my flesh and it's not gonna harm my soul. Nicolaitans. 
Clement of Alexandria said, quote, the Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats leading a life of self-indulgence. And so the Nicolaitans were the antinomians of the day. Antinomian, you guys should know the definition of, of this word. Antinomian is a theological term that means against the law. Antinomian, against the law. And so to be antinomian means, hey, you know, God's a God of grace, and so I can uh, live a life of immorality, and it's okay, God's gonna forgive me. How many Nicolaitan and how many antinomians do we have today in churches? People who say, hey, man, I know I sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, but it's okay. God's a God of grace. He's gonna forgive me. Everything's cool. You know, I know every once in a while I fall back into homosexual activity, but hey, it's okay. God's a God of grace. Everything's gonna be cool. I can continue to do that. It's not harming my soul. My soul is good no matter what I do in my flesh. Hey, I can get drunk on the weekends. I can smoke a little weed. I can look at a little bit of porn. None of that matters. God's a God of grace. And modern-day Nicolaitans have forgotten the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Please listen to the word of God. If you're with me here, say amen right now. Check this out. Paul said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. The grace of God should never, ever, ever be an excuse for us to live lives of immorality. If we choose to do that, we're antinomian. If we choose to do that, we're Nicolaitan. If we choose to do that, we're heretics. We're hypocrites. We're, we're only fooling ourselves because, ladies and gentlemen, sins of the flesh absolutely are toxic to our soul. And so Jesus says this, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And if you're here today and you're living in immorality, Jesus hates your works. Now, here's the thing. He loves you, but he hates your sin. And his love really should motivate you to repent. And with the help of his spirit, live a holy life. Can someone please say amen here? Amen. So important. Somebody said uh, the other day, uh, Pastor, I don't know how this church is growing the way you preach. Listen. <laughs> Listen. I don't care who I offend with the truth. I don't care. I don't care. Because I know we are all gonna appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I wanna stand there next to you and know I taught that guy the whole counsel of God. And so if he chose to do what he chose, hey, step up to the mic, bro. Step up. But I told you the truth. And so the church of Ephesus showed their discernment by not tolerating the Nicolaitans, and they showed their discernment by not tolerating false teachers. Did you see that now in verse two? Halfway down, he says, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves, quote unquote, apostles, and are not. How many of you know that there's a bunch of people who call themselves apostles, and they're not? and found them to be false. And so 
man, thank God, you know, in that day when these false apostles were going around, hey, I'm apostle so-and-so, and I'm apostle so-and-so, that the church at Ephesus said, no, you're not. You know why you're not? Number Two tests. Number one, what you're saying is not lining up with this book. And by the way, they did have scrolls of different letters of the New Testament, and they had the entire Old Testament, the Septuagint, in that day. They could check people out by the word of God. What you're saying is not lining up with the word of God and what, how you're living privately is not lining up to a holy life. And so you're a false apostle. And so how, do you, how many of you guys know today there's a bunch of people who call themselves apostles or whatever and they're traveling around churches and they're on your TV set. They're not apostles. And yet what do we do? We swallow what they have to say. Spurgeon wanted to commend the Ephesians in this part of his commentary, and so I wanted to put this up on the screen for you guys. Look at what Spurgeon said about the discernment of the church of Ephesus. He said, this was grand of them. It showed a backbone of truth. I wish some of the churches of this age had a little uh, of this holy decision about them. For nowadays, if a man be clever he may preach the vilest lie that was ever vomited from the mouth of hell, and it will go down with some. Spurgeon had a way with words, didn't he? He didn't mince words. He didn't pull punches. And so, hey, beware of the guy on TV who tells you, brother, sister, just reach out and touch the screen. You know, claim your miracle today. And, and write that check for $29.99 for your prayer cloth. I'll send you that prayer cloth so you can touch and agree. What are we doing? Where's our backbone to stand up to these people who live in these mansions? I'm gonna talk about next week the prosperity false gospel. Do you know why the prosperity gospel's false? Do you know why the teaching in a lot of American churches that it's always God's will for you to be healthy and always God's will for you to be financially prosperous, do you know why that's false? Because it does not apply globally. Ladies and gentlemen, I know people in Haiti who have greater faith than I'll ever have, and they're living in poverty. Okay, so listen to this. Listen to this. Some of these guys on TV, they need to go sell their three or four mansions and start supporting some of these people in Haiti who are in poverty. What an idea that is, right? And so, hey, here's what we need today. We need more churches like the Church of Ephesus who are grounded in the word of God so that they can sniff false doctrine a mile away. We need churches today that have some backbone and they're not gonna tolerate false teachers like the Church of Ephesus. And so if you ever move away and you ever find yourself in a church that says, well, the deity of Christ, you know, we're not sure. And, and you know, his virgin birth, well, it's, it's, it's debatable. And his sinless life, we don't know. And his vicarious death, hmm, um, you know, God's not a child abuser. Why would the father beat the son? And, you know, his blood atonement, uh, not really. And then, you know, um, um, we, we don't believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. We believe the Bible contains some of the word of God, but none of us know really how much of God's word is in this book. And, you know, um, as far as the, the resurrection, you know, maybe Jesus just rose spiritually. Maybe his body is still in the grave somewhere. And an ascension, I think, well, that could have been made up. That's what's taught in churches today. 
And if you ever find yourself in a church like that, one word of advice, you've heard this before. Let's, let's all say it on the count of three. One, two, three, run. Don't give these guys the time of day. The church at Ephesus was diligent. They were discerning. And then finally, they were determined. You see that in verse three? He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Man, they're so busy serving the Lord, and yet they wouldn't get tired. They're like the Energizer Bunny. Remember those commercials? Just keep going and going and going, determined to keep serving the Lord. Okay, so even though they were diligent and discerning and determined, get a little smiley face for that, Jesus had something against this church. Let's find out what it is in verse four. He says, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. So here's your next point. The church of Ephesus was diligent, discerning, determined, and what? Dead. I'm not talking about their salvation. I'm talking about their spiritual vitality. And as far as that part of the evaluation, they get a little frowny face there from the Lord. Why? Because they abandoned their first love. They lost their spiritual vitality. They lost their fire for Jesus Christ. Even though they were orthodox, right? All the stuff that we talked about earlier, um, they were dead set, Bible-believing, orthodox Christians. But the problem is, at some point, they left their first love and they became, became dead as far as their spiritual vitality. And ladies and gentlemen, the same thing can happen to us in our lives. And it's illustrated by that bonfire that I opened the message with. Okay, now that's not the actual bonfire from our camp out. I just wanna make sure you guys know that, okay? Uh, we, we was probably only half that big. But anyway, man, when you talk about a, a raging bonfire, Check out how intense that is. Look at the flames that are shooting up into the sky, giving light to everything around it. And so, not that big, but at one point, the fire that we had was very intense. But guess what happened just a few hours later to our big fire? It became a pile of smoldering embers. And everybody went to bed in the cold darkness. And so when it comes to your relationship with Jesus Christ, are you a raging fire? Or are you a pile of smoldering embers? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not talking about personality, right? Because some of you, like me, I know you don't know this when I'm preaching, but in real life, um, or I should say life at home, I'm an introvert. And I know probably based on statistics, 60% of you are introverts, okay? And so here's what I'm, to so all the introverts here today, what I'm not saying is you gotta become somebody you're not. And so from now on, from this day forward, you gotta walk around and say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, when you walk up to somebody, give them high five for Jesus, yeah! No, I'm not saying to become somebody you're not. Now, by the way, those of you who are extroverted and you walk around and you're intense, well, praise the Lord for that. That's the way God made you, just be who you are. 
And by the way, I don't hear you enough during worship. Right? So I'm not talking about changing your personality. Here's what we're saying. As far as your passion for Jesus Christ in your individual relationship with him, are you a roaring fire or are you a pile of smoldering embers? If you wanna be a raging bonfire, you got to do what Jesus said in the next verse. Okay, so now look at verse five. He says, remember, okay, so underline remember, if you don't mind marking in your Bible. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, then he said, repent, please underline repent, and do, please underline the word do, do the works you did at first, okay? So here's your next point. If your passion is waning, remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. There's your recipe for revival from Jesus Christ himself. It's not brain surgery, it's real simple. Anybody can put this into practice. And so, remember. He says, remember from where you have fallen. In other words, remember how it used to be when you were close to the Lord. Maybe when you first came to Jesus. Do you remember how those days? Man, you, you talked to, to, to Jesus about everything, like he was your best friend. You devoured his word every single day. You, you shared your faith, not because you had to, it just flowed out of you. Um, um, not only that, you loved coming to church. It was exciting. People didn't have to drag you to church. When you sinned, um, you, you knew it right when you sinned. Oh, man, I just blew it. And you kept short accounts with the Lord. Not like now where at the end of the week, Lord, if I messed up sin this week, please forgive me. No, you knew it as soon as it happened because you're like this with Jesus. Okay, so whatever it is, remember how it used to be. And then he says, repent. The word repent, metanoia, means a change of mind. Okay, and so he, here's what you do. Um, you consider your lack of passion right now. Okay, you think about your lack of passion, your apathy right now. And then you simply make a decision to change. You make a decision, today's the last day of apathetic Christian living. Today's the last day of going through the motions. Today's the last day of living this routine. Today's the last day I'm putting up with this in my life. Lord, I'm coming back to you. I'm gonna remember how it used to be. I'm gonna repent. And then I'm gonna repeat. Jesus said in verse five, do the works you did at first. And so what were the works that you, you used to do when you were like this with Jesus? You know, maybe you came to church every single Sunday you were here. Do that again. Maybe you were involved in a life group during the week, made some friends, life on life. Do that again. Maybe you served in some capacity at the church. Do that again. Maybe you spent time every single day one-on-one -on -one with Jesus in his word. Do that again between first and second service. An older guy in our church came to me and he said, thank you so much for uh, recommending Warren Wearsby's Transformation Bible, which we have in the cafe. I always, you know, I always recommend to Ryrie and the Transformation Bible by Warren Wearsby. He said, I got that thing. And as I'm going through that Bible every day and through Warren Wearsby's notes, the Lord is setting my heart on fire. And I was like, 
yes, because this guy's been walking with the Lord for decades. Yes, this is good. Okay, so whatever it is, those first works, maybe you used to share your faith all the time, do that again. Maybe you used to tithe to the Lord as an act of worship, right? Because tithing is not something we do because we're under the law. We're not under the law, we're under grace. And tithing predates the law because we see Abraham and his son Jacob, Jacob vowed to tithe for the rest of his life as an act of worship and to honor the Lord's name. Maybe you used to do that and you got out of it. Do that again. Whatever those first works were, if you'll do them, I believe the Holy Spirit will set you on fire once again. And so what if the church of Ephesus did not remember or repent or repeat? What would happen? Well, Jesus said it in the second half of verse five. He says, if not, if you don't do these things, I will come to you and remove your, what's the word? Okay, so help me out here. The seven lampstands symbolize the seven what? Churches. Okay, so let's read it again. If not, I will come to you and remove your church. Right there. Scares me to death. Church at Ephesus, you're apathetic. Orthodox, yes. Apathetic, yes. You've left your first love. And if you don't repent, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna close down your church. Scares me to death to think of what could happen. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so Jesus does not want to close down churches because he knows that we're the light of the world. He wants us to shine in our communities. But he said, if you leave your first love, I'm gonna come one day and knock on that door. You're gonna shrivel up and you're gonna disband. And that's gonna be it. Look at what, speaking of Warren Wiersbe, look at what he said. The church that loses its love will soon lose its light no matter how doctrinally sound it may be. And so how many Orthodox churches do we know in the past who had every T crossed and every I dotted when it came to the fundamentals of the faith, but they left their first love and because of their lack of passion, eventually they shriveled up and they, the Christians disbanded to other churches in the community. And also how many Christians do we know who are doctrinally perfect, they're all into theology, but they don't love Jesus like they should, they don't love people like they should, and they're shriveling up spiritually. And so the Lord says, hey, you can remember, you can repent, you can repeat, I don't want you, I don't wanna remove your lampstand, I want you to experience passion. And then here's your last two verses, look at verse six and seven. He says, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. We already covered it. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the what? Churches, plural. Okay, so that means this is not just for one church 2,000 years ago. It's for all churches of all time. He says, to all churches of all time, to the one who conquers, 
I will grant to eat of the tree of life. It's important, the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so in closing, let me give you some good news and some bad news, okay? Concerning the tree of life, okay? So here's, here's the bad news. Stay with me all the way through the end. Here's the bad news. We all have a daddy, one common daddy. His name is Adam. And because Adam disobeyed the Lord and ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he lost his fellowship with God and he was banned from the Garden of Eden and from the tree of life. That's the bad news. And God, by the way, we're all part of that because as by one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death by sin, so death has passed upon all men and women for all have sinned. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, left his throne in heaven and came to the earth and he conquered death, he conquered sin, he conquered hell, he conquered the grave through his death and his resurrection. And now he says, if you will come to me in repentance and faith, I will restore what Adam lost. I will restore your fellowship with the Father and you will one day eat from the tree of life. Did you guys know we're all gonna see the tree of life someday? Here's your last verse right here. Blessed, Jesus said, are those who wash their robes, that means in his blood, so that they may have the right to the what? The tree of life, that's in the New Jerusalem, and that they may enter the city by the gates. And so the question is, have you been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ? That's the first step. You gotta come to Christ in repentance and faith. The best way you know how, I know nobody's perfect, none of us will ever be perfect this side of the grave, but you gotta turn from your sin to Jesus as your only hope and ask him to be your savior and Lord. And then he washes you with the blood of the lamb. That's the first step. The second thing is you can't allow yourself to cool off. You can't allow yourself to become spiritually apathetic. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.